Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. In the next two programmes, I chat with Jonathan Douglas, who these days is back in England, but for years was the voice on RTHK's English language classical channel Radio 4. He also acted in multiple productions here and, as a boy, always wanted to be an actor or rock star. He was discouraged in both, he says, and teaching was seen as a much more sensible occupation. At the age of 23, he spent a year in Singapore, was on his way to teach in Japan when he stopped off in Hong Kong and found it so breathtakingly exciting. It was more craggy, that's kind of polished and more craggy. And the, and the, the buildings were somehow more as if they were extensions of the topography. It was breathtaking. And, and, and also coming from Singapore, which is quite mellow and very flat, to Hong Kong, which, you know, the, you, you definitely the tempo goes up and uh, it, it's more dirty and grimy. And of course, you get the hills everywhere. My first time I viewed Hong Kong Island from the Chim Sa Chui Ferry, I couldn't believe anything like that existed in the world. I thought, oh gosh, I must be on Mars or something. And then I, I, I remember strolling to Chim Sa Chui East and just by chance walking into the lobby of the Shangri-La Hotel and just inquiring about whether they happened to need a pianist. And it just so happened they were opening a cocktail lounge. <laughs> on the top floor. It was called the Tiara Lounge. <laughs> and uh, they said, well, yeah, actually, yeah, we are. And then uh, this big, burly German food and beverage manager guy, he came down, he took me up there to this place, and he asked me to play him a few tunes, and I did, and, and, and he offered me a job. And what sort of tunes did you have to play? I had done a bit of this kind of work in London, playing in cocktail lounges and, and, and hotels. I mean, I suppose I played things like As Time Goes By and, and Misty and this kind of thing, and probably and a few of my own little sort of versions of tunes by Simon Garfunkel and the Beatles, that sort of thing. when you had had a wish to become a rock star, what kind of rock star would you have been? Yeah, it, that's an interesting question because I, I, my interest in music is in different areas. So I can play this kind of music play in, in hotels. I was also 
deeply, deeply and passionately interested in classical music. Some people thought at the time was very surprising. And I was also deeply, passionately into basically rock music. Like? When I was very, very tiny, it was pretty much coincided with the Beatles era. So as a like a toddler and a, and, a, and a very young kid, I couldn't not help but be listening to, the, to, the, to these Beatles hits, which when you're there at the time, it, gosh, it stays with you. It, you it's difficult for anybody who didn't experience that to imagine what it was like to be at that. If so, it was a very heady time. Even though I was so young, it totally dominated British life, the the Beatles music, and to some extent, the Rolling Stones music, and then this whole in incredible era of British pop music that it triggered. Baby's good to me, you know she's happy as can be, you know she said so. So that this was what I was listening to all the time. I had an older brother, so he was he was introducing me. You may have only been about two or three, but he was force feeding me <laughs> Beatles and hits and things. Um, so I was listening to that all the time, and then I of course I, I just got into whatever happened next. There was the sixties, which was the Kinks, and and then uh, there was Bob Dylan and so on, and from and all the American stuff as well. And then and then of course there was the other uh, the, the sort of flower power era. And the and music got heavier, the cream, and I just sort of discovered Eric Clapton, and then and then Led Zeppelin started in the late sixties, so I really got into Led Zeppelin, and then all these sort of mega bands like like Yes and King Crimson. Do you remember, some of people of my own age would remember that those sort of bands, King Crimson. Then uh, moving into the to the seventies, you, you had things like David Bowie and Queen. So th this was the mu this was really, really the music that informed me as a in terms of my interest in rock music. So I kind of played this music. I, I got into the school band at secondary school immediately because I played the keyboards and I and it was kind of folk rock I suppose it was we kind mm. of hippieish folk rock. Well, I was very young when I gravitated towards the piano and I learnt to play by ear and uh, I learnt to sort of improvise a little bit and play blues and got the hang of. Keys. When I got to my secondary school, the cool kind of number one rock band at the school that the, the people discovered, I played keyboards. So they recruited me, which was very, very cool because I was only 14 and they were sort of 17 and 18. It was slightly folky, but more rocky with with the emphasis on this lead guitar, you know. And it was, and, and, and very much playing original music, of course. So actually pretty good. I rather regret not trying to keep keep going with that band. I fell out with a lead guitarist, I remember. Which is <laughs> unfortunate. Clash of egos, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so well, that was the rock side. The, the classical side was, uh, I just, when I was really quite young, about seven, 
So I happened to overhear the opening bars of the Bach Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Three, which my dad happened to put on in his little mono record player, and it, it immediately blew me away. I, I, you know, I immediately realised that this music, whatever it was, was on a completely different level compared to Led Zeppelin and Cream. <laughs> Yeah, it's very interesting. And uh, so I, I, of course, then I asked my parents, what was this music? And they showed me, and, you know, I thought, well, who is this Bach? And, oh, he wrote six of these so-called Brandenburg concertos. And so off my own back, so I, this was totally independent of any teacher or gui- any guidance from any adult. I figured out this guy Bach wrote these Brandenburg concertos, and he lived at a certain time in a certain place, and he also wrote masses and oratorio and uh, lots of other concertos and lots of pieces for harpsichord and, and you know, all that sort of thing. <laughs> discovered that there are other <laughs> classical composers, including Mozart and Beethoven. And my mother had an old LP of Mozart overtures, uh, which, again, in their own way, blew me away. But I, rec- I, I realised, well, this, this is music of a similar substance and significance, but it's a different style compared to the Brach Bandenberg concertos. And then I thought, oh, I discovered, well, Mozart was living in a different era, and that, that, that kind of music had developed. And then, then I discovered Beethoven and listened to his pastoral symphony, and then, oh, I discovered he, he wrote nine of these things called symphonies. <laughs> and I got into my own little world 
classical music world, listening to more and more and more classical music and going to concerts, usually on my own, because nobody else wanted to go to classical. And at that time, you could, for next to nothing, you could sit in the gallery of the Royal Albert Hall and listen to great orchestras play great music. I mean, I used to do that from when I was about 13, 14, 15. Just go there on my own. If, any, if I could drag anyone, that, it was my own little private obsession. And then when it was discovered that this guy who was playing rock music in the rock band was also obsessed with classical music, people thought that was very, very peculiar and very unusual. And my obsession with classical music, of course, put me in good stead for when I came to Hong Kong. Not that I was intending to look for a job in radio or classical music radio, but... So you go from playing piano in a hotel. Yeah. How did you then come to Radio 4? This this, uh, this piano playing thing, because it was obviously being a British colony, it was very easy for British people in terms of working. There was no need for work visas. I was offered this job playing the piano for three months initially. And so when that came up... And they offered me another six months playing piano. And the, the offer in Japan was still open. And that was a huge decision, actually. What was the offer in Japan? Oh, it was, it was to be a teacher at the British Council. And it was, a bit, it was a huge decision whether or not to go to Japan and, you know, begin a completely different kind of life there or to stay in Hong Kong. And so, uh, yeah, so I, I took up this extra six months playing piano in Shangri-La. And it was during that time that... I kind of discovered that there was a local radio. I got into the habit of listening to the Hong Kong RTHK as it happened every morning and so on. And, dis- and I discovered, obviously, Radio 3, and then re- that there was this Radio 4, which had classical music. And I thought, I know a lot about classical music. I've got a handle on the core repertoire of classical music. Of course, I've done a lot of acting, so I guess I kind of know how to use my voice. And, and so I... I think I wrote a hand. I actually wrote a handwritten letter. I'm, I think I might have even written it in pencil <laughs> <laughs> to you know to nobody in particular. It never occurred to me that, that anything would come of it. But I got a, I got a call from uh, this this fellow called Clive Simpson, who he he invited me in to have a, a voice test. I have to say this is the, this is the kind of thing that w- would only happen in Hong Kong. I think, in that time. I mean, it's inconceivable that anything would happen like that at the BBC, I, I think. So what were the programmes that you were working on when you first started there? I think the approach then was, was very different. It was more that you had some guy doing the continuity. People, people were thinking more in terms of shifts, live shifts. There were fewer recorded programmes, and it was actually modelled more on the kind of traditional BBC World Service kind of style, I would say. But so you, so you would do live interviews with people coming in or people staging shows here? Well, interviews were things which Clive, in fact, was doing on his arts magazine programme, which, which he was, he called, I think he called it serendipity. But live interviews on Radio 4 were not, very common until I introduced them in particularly my the, mor- the morning program Good Morning or Four. In those days, one thing about Radio Four was that the, was that the Radio Four presenters read the news. So one of the things that I had to learn how to do was read the news. And then when they started getting me on the early morning program, it was very early. I had to be there by sort of ten to six because it, it, everything began at six. And the first thing I had to do was read a news bulletin at six o'clock. It was a 15-minute news bulletin, so you had to have your wits about you, <laughs> um, especially for, for me. And I, I have to say I was a bit 
I was a bit off the rails in those days. You know, my, my, my kind of aspiring rock star mentality had not left me. <laughs> I, I was, you know, a bit, I was a bit long-haired and bohemian and up to all sorts of naughty things. So it was called Good Morning on uh, Good Morning on Four in those days. Actually, I, I, in those days, you arrived at uh, before six, read the news bulletin, and then there was a sort of light music program, which you presented in a more appropriate way for light music. And that light music program was for both Radio Three and Radio Four. And then at seven o'clock, there was a news summary which you read. That's when the classical music. I mean, that's when Good Morning on Four started uh, at the seven o'clock. And um, that, and what sort of program was it? It was it was just you just introduced bits and pieces of classical music. That's all it was, and and they tended to be short pieces, so they could be movements from things which you thought people might like to listen to at that hour in the morning. And it was maybe movements from string quartets or, or overtures, and you had to be a bit chatty and and say interesting and engaging things to make people interested in listening to the music. And that was the kind of the skill, of course, you had to learn how to do. But I think at that stage there wasn't even bilingual present presentation, and there certainly wasn't, you know, interviews or kind of pre-prepared features. So I carried on doing it, and then it, for some reason I changed its name to Morning Call, and the Radio Four people didn't read the news anymore. Radio Four became, well, for a start, it became more even-handed in terms of westerns, westerners, and, and local Chinese staff. Let me think. It was probably fairly fifty-fifty in those days when I when I arrived. Um, but but there was and and Douglas Gautier, who had just recently become head of Radio Four, was trying to in introduce more Cantonese language presentation and bilingual presentation. Tell me about so this. I mean, obviously, with having a, a, a basically a classical radio station. Yes, I can hear that. You'd have to start people off gently in the mornings with. Um, different kind of classical. Now, tell me about you know some of the because you you did as you say you introduced the idea of live interviews. Yeah. So um, I know there will have been many, but could you highlight some? Uh, yeah. So I, I was doing both the the morning program where I introduced. I would say there were two interviews with arts personalities of some sort every morning. So I did. I, I ended up doing a lot, and it, and also I was doing the arts magazine program, which I which I called Art Beat after a while. So I, I, I did spend a lot of my working life at Radio 4 meeting people and, and, and interviewing them. And I got so accustomed to it that whether it was a young undergraduate or graduate from the APA doing a production here in Hong Kong or whether it was a Yo-Yo Ma or Isaac Stern, it didn't make that much difference to me. I, I didn't get... I got so used to it. I, I wasn't as starry-eyed when I met it's well famous people as people imagine I would be but having said that I, I suppose I cannot help but say that the one of the most uh, memorable interviews one of the most memorable meetings was with Isaac Stern violinist because the, the whole the whole event went beyond just the interview it was just a slightly bizarre and a slightly wonderful encounter I remember he was staying at the, at the Peninsula Hotel and I arrived at his suite obviously he had the, the biggest most important room in the hotel and the door was ajar and so I knocked on the door and you know rang the bell and I, I heard this voice and this American accent sort of saying it's open which was weird <laughs> it was Isaac Stern you know and he was on the phone or something and so I just walked in 
and he put, he was on the phone. He put his hand on the receiver and said, and he just invited me to make myself at home at the at the table, which was all prepared for breakfast. Everything, you know, croissant, goodness knows what, coffee. And so he was especially waiting for me to have breakfast with him, and um, and then we had breakfast together. And we just chatted, and he was one of the most urbane and interesting and impressive people I've ever met, without any doubt. I mean, he was talking, talking about huge, huge issues in a in a very everyday, approachable manner. Not just music, but about you know religious extremism and and, and politics and and his family and also personal things. And and when was this? He died just as of a heart attack after witnessing. 9-11. 2001. Right. We talked a lot about the evil of fanaticism and, and extremism. And then, and then it was really basically that that led to his death, because he, he, he witnessed it, immediately had a heart attack, because he was living nearby, or he was, he was at Carnegie Hall or whatever, and he looked out of the window and he saw the plane crash. He had a heart attack, and then he died shortly afterwards. Uh, so that interview must have been in the mid-90s, I suppose. Now, I mean, I've come across on, uh, I think on YouTube or on the internet, you've got one with Chris Patton. Yeah. In addition to doing Morning Call, I did lots and lots of other programmes. And Morning Call, it was the arts magazine programme. And, and lots and lots of series and things. And one of the programmes that I devised, I suppose, was sort of based on Desert Island Discs kind of concept. But I, it was for, for couples. And with, not necessarily, but usually 
uh, a kind of special focus on their courtship, the early roman- romance, and all that sort of thing. And and so against that backdrop, to to invite people to to play music that that was important to them at a certain point in their life, and perhaps particularly their early romance sort of thing. And I call this program "It Takes Two, and and these were VIP kind of guests, and I guess the the uh, celebrity. VIP guests were, were the patterns, and it was it was uh, an amazing experience too. I did it at QGO. Oh, so the Queen, the studio at Queensway. Yeah, Queensway, and uh, I, I just I did it with Chris Patton and Lavender Patton, and they 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 told me I think in advance what kind what music they they were going to choose. Uh, I arrived at QGO and it was just full of press, you know, reporters and particularly cameramen and um, TV cameras and still cameras. The, the place was was just bursting at the seams with these people with cameras. So I kind of fought my way through this, this is the next door room, into the studio where, where the patterns were just sitting there, very relaxed. And to, to be in that situation of sitting with Chris and Lavender Patton in, in that studio was a great privilege, I suppose. I, and you know, we chatted about how we we're going to do the programme. And then Somebody came in and said, um, oh, Governor, would it, would it be all right if the camera people come in? And he said, yes. And then, you know, like all hell broke loose. It was just this mad stampede of cameras coming in and clicking, you know, the clicking of, of pictures being taken was just something I'd never, obviously, I mean, I'm, you know, <laughs> there's no reason why anyone would particularly want to take a picture of me in that situation. So I've never experienced it before. And I remember Chris Patton, very mischievously, he turned to me and he, and he said, um, watch this. And he, he turned to me and he made, he made a very significant gesture and, and then with, you know, and an expression on his face. And the cameras went berserk. <laughs> yeah, so he's, I mean, you know, he's, he's got this kind of mischievous sense of humour, which was, was very attractive part of his personality. And what sort of music did he like? Well, he, he liked different music at different stages of his life. I, I remember one piece of music that they both are very much associated with, like their first meeting or, or going to their first dance, was a Rolling Stones song. He has certain singers, Chris Patton has certain singers who he, who he, he loves singing, for example, Bach. There's a legendary British soprano who, whose, era, whose era was sort of 50s, 60s, 70s. Kathleen Ferrier he likes very much.
chatting with Jonathan Douglas there. Next week, I hear more from Jonathan about some of the interviews he's done for Radio 4 during his time from 1983 until 2017, and also how after years of amateur acting, he went back to London to study acting. And we'll hear some of him on the piano. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>